you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we're still there. We got through some of it last week, we'll see how far we can go today. We looked last week at the three sort of pillars of Judaism, if you want to call it that. The, the giving, the prayer and the fasting, or we started to look at them anyway. And uh, to the point of view of giving, you know, Jesus was saying, you know, don't make your giving ostentatious. Don't, you don't need to tell people that you've given. As long as your Father in Heaven knows that your heart's right, that the motives of your heart are right, then your reward will be in Heaven and not here on Earth. If you want your reward on Earth and you want the praise of men, then Jesus says, you already have it. That is your reward. That's all you'll get. There is no more. <clears throat> and when we, when we see Jesus speaking this Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes and all the rest of it that, that we do in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, this is almost a summation of all that he would teach all through his ministry. That he would absolutely astound people by coming forward with these statements. Because the authority that he had was directly from the Father. This is the Father's heart. This is what Jesus is sharing with us. This is the very essence of who God is. The Jews had a very blinkered view of who God was. And we see that in these sections here about giving to the needy and about prayer and about fasting. And notice that what Jesus is saying here is when you give, when you pray, and when you fast, it's not if, it's when. He expects that as a matter of course. That's something that is instilled in us when we're born again. We want to give back. Jesus spoke about it with a woman in Samaria when he said that, you know, I'll, I'll give you living water to drink, but you'll never thirst again and it'll flood out you like, a, like a, an everlasting fountain of living water. And that's, in some measure, the giving as well. So it's the giving heart, it's the motive that counts. It's not what you give, it's how you give it. Are we giving it because we're looking for men's praises or are we giving it because we have that genuineness, that real sense of how people are suffering and they need it? And so we go on to prayer here and we kind of touched on it just a little bit last week. There's a kind of template for prayer if you want to call it this, what is referred to within Christian circles as the Lord's Prayer. But really in some measure I suppose it's the disciples' prayer. There's no point in praying this unless you know the Lord. There's no point in praying this unless you really know that you've been washed in the blood and born of the Spirit. It's sometimes referred to in, in the Roman Catholic tradition as the Pater Noster or the Pater Noster, which is the Our Father. And unfortunately, it's developed into some sort of religious chant that, you know, when you go to confession and confess your sins, that you go out and you say five Hail Marys and four Our Fathers and that's your sins forgiven. And, and it loses the whole point of the fact that Jesus died on the cross that our sins might be forgiven. And it arose again on the third day that we might be raised to new life in him. We don't need a prayer that brings forgiveness of sin because there isn't one. It's interesting that in the early days of the Roman Catholic Church, when people could neither read nor write in, in their own language, the children were taught to say the Pater Noster in Latin which became just a, something that they recited. It, it meant nothing to them because they didn't know what it meant. And in some measure we get back to the same situation that in the early days <coughs> of the church with the Roman Catholic tradition, which was round about maybe the 4th, 5th, 6th century, that people were being put to death 
because they wanted there was a movement starting to get the Bible printed in your own language so that you could understand what it was and what it was you were praying and uh, of course all of these things all of these man made things led to the led to the, the reformation of the church and the reform, reformed church as we know it today but Jesus says at verse 9 here he says this then is how you should pray a disciple prayer not, not for people that are unsaved it means nothing to people that are unsaved the first part in some measure as I said last week I think honours God and the second part sets out a relationship with God and man and of course it brings forward our needs to God as well our father in heaven it says in this or who art in heaven whichever version you're reading from at the moment our father in heaven hallowed be your name we spoke briefly about it last week this word father remember this is a Jewish audience that we're speaking to here that Jesus is speaking to to call God the father would be something that would be different for the Jews it would be different in the terms that they always looked upon God as being a father in some respects but away way up here somewhere away <coughs> up in the clouds where you couldn't reach him and as far as they were concerned to refer to our, our father <coughs> excuse me in this sense was almost blasphemous because Jesus was teaching people to refer to him as daddy Abba and, and, and to refer to him as being that heavenly father that father who is close who cares for our every need who looks upon our every need to answer it and the whole thing comes round for the, the point of view that many of the pagan gods were looked upon as ogres you had to always I mean if you look at ancient religions in some measure even today with things like Islam and, and Hinduism and Buddhism the, the sacrifice is always offered to appease it's, almost a, it's always an appeasement you've always got to either self-mutilate or, or, or offer some sort of food sacrifice or, or whatever and it's always an appeasement to, so that the gods won't be angry with you and here was Jesus saying this God who I am part of this God who is my father in heaven is not an angry God he's slow to anger and he's swift in love or he's swift in love and slow to anger whichever way you want to look at it gracious and merciful and he says our father in heaven now first of all we get this idea a God being a father and now a father in heaven a great and a holy God in heaven who rules the universe who wants a personal relationship with us he wants us to refer to him as daddy that closeness that relationship why because he chose to love us that agape choice that love that was a choice of will that God so loved the world God so agaped the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should have eternal life <coughs> why would he love us why would he love us to the point where he would want to die for us he wants to love us because if you look back in Genesis we are the pinnacle of his creation we are the only thing in creation that God ever said I will make man in my image the planets the, the, the solar system all the rest of it are secondary to who we are we are the apple of God's eye we are the children of our father now many people might come to you today and say well 
We're all Christians. We're all Joe Tamsin's bearers. And that's not the truth yet. We're all God's creation. But in John chapter 1 it tells us that God came to his own and his own would not accept him but to those who would accept him he gave them the right or the privilege to become sons and daughters of the living God. So only those who are washed in the blood, only those who have put their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, only those who have been raised again by the Spirit to that new life in Him, only those can be called children of God. So the whole world is God's creation, yes, and all the people in it. And He loves them all equally. He loves you and I just as much as He loves the person out there that's committing murder right now. He died for them all. For all the Muslims and all the Buddhists and all the rest of them, all those that have totally and absolutely turned against him, he chose to love them and he chose to die for them. And that's where our Heavenly Father is. The pinnacle. We are the pinnacle of his creation, made in his very image. And it says here, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This word hallowed is is hagios in the Greek which means different, but different in a, in a holy sense, different in a sense that it's almost unattainable, that, you know, a dog is different for me, and I can never be a dog, and a dog can never be me. And that's what this word hallowed means. God is so different in that sense, that he's holy, that he's just, Something beyond our imagination. Something beyond what we could ever hope for or imagine. And yet this God, this God came to earth as a man and died for us. That we might be reunited to God. That that gap that sin created between God the Father and us might be filled by him. Hallowed be your name. We look upon that name as being a name above all other names. When we think about this being hallowed, we think about it being holy and, and, and desirable. And yet today we see many people who just detract from the name. The name is not hallowed to them anymore. They stand in churches week after week and recite this prayer and it means nothing to them. To those who are born again, I say again, to those who are born again it means much to us. That style of prayer, but it means nothing to those who infrequently stand up and pray it. We speak of God with reverence, not reference, reverence, but we have confidence in Him as well, so we can come confidently and say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we can put that in any sense or fashion we want to put it. This is a template, this is a, 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 a protocol for prayer if you want to call it that. This is something that you can mix and match. The Lord is my shepherd. Thank you Lord that you are my shepherd. Thank you that being my shepherd, that makes you a father. Somebody who looks after me. I mean, Whatever way you want to put this around, this is the template for prayer. This is how we should pray. Your kingdom come, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That first statement, in some measure, qualifies the second. It's prophetic. When Jesus comes again, thy will be done. 
Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come is not coming until Jesus comes back. The kingdom that's here just now is within us. That part of it that the Holy Spirit has planted in us. But the outworking of that kingdom will not come until Jesus returns for that second time. But right now, thy will be done. We have to bend our will to God's will because God's will, I hate to say it, is totally against anything that we would ever think to do. To be given to the needy to the point where it's sacrificed. To be praying on a regular basis. To be fasting. To be looking upon people with a, with a, what we should we say, a compassion instead of a judgmental attitude. It's totally against what the, the natural thing in us wants to do. And yet, God says, pray this, thy will be done. And that's something that we have to pray. And we do often, I'm sure we do, Lord, if this is your will, let it be done. Many times I've prayed it. Father, if this is your will, then close the door or open the door or whatever it requires. But if, if you don't want it for me, Lord, then I don't want it either. That, that really should be the prayer. That, that's when you pray, thy will be done. If, if, if you don't want it, then you've got to take it before God. No matter how much your flesh cries out for it and your eyes say, oh, I'd love to have that. You've got to put it before God and say, if this is for you, Lord, I'll accept it gladly and I'll use it to your glory. If this is not from you, then I don't want it. I choose not to want it. And we see that situation arising with Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he struggled he's calling do you remember right at the start of his ministry when, when he was in the desert being tempted by Satan and eventually when it was all over Satan departed for a more opportune time well the more opportune time was the Garden of Gethsemane right at the end of the ministry of Jesus on this earth and Satan would be there all the time saying, this is not what God wants you to do. He doesn't want you to go to the cross. What good is it if you go to the cross? What will that achieve? What will that accomplish? All these people that put your trust in you, all they're going to do is be heartbroken and disappointed that you've gone. And yet the Father said to him, this is my will, that you die for the sin of the world. And so Jesus was caught between the two and you know, it's hard to imagine that he suffered such a stress in that situation and yet he bent himself to his father's will. Everything in his flesh cried out, don't do it. Don't do it. This is horrific. This is horrible. This is pointless. And yet the will of the father said to him, this is what you have to do. You know, and sometimes we think we're getting a hard time in life. We've never been asked to put our life on the line yet as Jesus did there are many in this world Christians who are putting their life on the line on a daily basis I was just reading a letter for a friend of mine Tony John, some of you may remember him he's out in South East Asia and he's uh, he's really smuggling Bibles into all sorts of places that they shouldn't be going and he uh, okay, had been arrested and threatened with a gun and his phone taken off him and smashed and, and then it turns out that this policeman who had arrested him actually had two daughters who had been converted to Christianity and he was angry about it because 
He was given the task. He was the police chief. He was given the task of arresting the local Christians. And he was forced at the end of the day to arrest both his daughters and put them in prison. And so Tony got a hard time off of this guy. But what actually happened at the end of the day was that people within the church who understood that these two young girls might be in severe trouble in the jail, they went forward to this police chief and said, we'll go to jail on their behalf, let them out and we'll go in. And he was so touched by that, he became a Christian as well. So, you know, this is, that in some measure, these two people just didn't walk up to the police station and, and say, I, I want to take those two out and two in. They prayed, Father, what is your will? What would you have us do? How can we help in this situation? And what they did was giving. They gave up their lives. They gave up nine months of their freedom so that these two young girls might be taken out of a dangerous situation. But God honoured it. The father got saved. And now they've got a police chief that's a Christian who has to juggle this idea of having to arrest Christians and yet worship with them <coughs> at the same time. But they're working it out. They're, they're kind of giving themselves up wrongs and saying, well, put us in jail for another nine months and that'll keep you right with the authorities and, and you can still come and worship with us. There's no resentment. There's no... It's just... It's wonderful how God works it in people's lives. So we have to be that people that are prepared to submit our will to God's will. You know, it's easy to submit yourself to something even although you do it grudgingly. I mean, somebody asks you to go and wash the floor or your wife asks you to do the dishes and you say, aye, all right. And then rattle, bang, and there's cups with handles off them and all sorts of things. But you're still doing what you were asked to do. But we need to get rid of the kind of grudge part of it. We need to be able to submit to the will of God without doing it in a, in a backhanded manner. You know, Jesus spoke about that in Matthew 21 and we'll probably look at that sometime in the next three or four years um, <clears throat> it was it said that a man had two sons and he asked one of his sons go out into the vineyard and work and he said aye I'll do that and he went out and never did it and he said to his other son will you go out and work in the vineyard and he said no I'm not doing it but he went out and did it so who was it that did the father's will the one who said he would do it or the one who did it the one who did it of course so sometimes even when we say grudgingly I'll do it <coughs> excuse me, God will still honour what you do because that's his heart it might not be your heart at the time but hopefully while you're doing it like these people in I'm not going to mention the country because I don't want Tony in any trouble but these people who were volunteering themselves they may not have went totally willingly but they went because they realised that that's what God wanted them to do Give us today our daily bread. Verse 11. Jesus didn't ask to be given our daily cake or our daily fillet steak or whatever. It was the very, the very daily existence, the bread, all that was needed. People ate a lot of bread in the time of Jesus. Bread and fish was the staple diet. That was basically it. You know, just when Fiona was talking about that uh, scripture this morning about giving your children, a, if your child asks for a loaf, will you give them a stone? If you've ever been in Israel, when you go to Capernaum, you'll see these great big 
stones lying, big black stones lying. And they're used for all sorts of things. I mean, they're used to heat up ovens, they're used to, to press clothes, they're used to do all sorts of things. They, but they look very much like a loaf of bread, like a big round loaf of bread. And that's exactly what a loaf of bread in Jesus' time would turn into. You've got to bake your bread. You had to bake your bread on a daily basis. And in one of these beehive ovens, we talked about that with the salt in the bottom to keep the insulation, they would bake these loaves and when they brought them out, they were beautiful, well baked and fresh and they're nothing like fresh bread just to, just to cleanse the palate and fill you up. But leave that bread for a day and it goes like a boulder because there's nothing in it. There's no preservatives in it. There's, no, there's nothing there that would keep it fresh. And that's what Jesus was trying to allude to. He was probably teaching in Capernaum at the time and these big stones would be lying there. He says, if your son asks for bread, would you give him a stone? If you put the two of them side by side, unless you went up to them, you wouldn't know the difference. In fact, even if you went up to them, it would only be the weight that would uh, convince you that one was not the same as the other. So daily bread for these people, this, is, this was an essential to them. In the time of Jesus... When the men went out at six o'clock in the morning to fish or come in from fishing if they'd been out all night, the women spent the whole day preparing the fish and cooking the bread. And that was their life. That was it. You spent your whole life in an existence. And Jesus was telling them, you know, when you go before your Father in heaven, ask him for your daily bread. And he didn't just mean for a loaf. Spiritual food's the same thing that we need as well. And it's tainted and it's wasted if it's yesterday's bread. It needs to be fresh. It needs to be today. And God says that. I'll pour all my blessings into your life on a daily basis. That's your bread. That's your spiritual food for the day. You know, the problem sometimes is that in this Western society, we fail to give thanks to God for what we have. We go to Aldi's or Tesco's or wherever. I'm not advertising, by the way. But and we expect to be able to be given a loaf that's fresh. We expect to be able to get anything we want to eat off the shelves. And yet, somebody somewhere has to produce it. The Father in Heaven is the guy who provides it. I think I've said this before in a couple of occasions. This world produces 4 billion tonnes of food a year. And two billion tons of it is wasted. Half of it. And that's even including the poorer countries. Half of what they produce is wasted. And half of what we produce is wasted. Half of what we eat. How much do we throw in the bins that would that would feed somebody? And again I say to you, if you want to count it up, if you want to count one ton per second, if it was a million tons then it would take you a week and two days to count up to a million one a second. If you want to talk about a billion tons of food, it would take you 30 years. So multiply that before. It would take you 130 years to count the amount of food, ton by ton, that God supplies us with in a year in this earth. How good is he? How good and pleasant it is to be a son of the living God that he supplies all this food you see we take it for granted we plant a seed in the ground and it grows and we get crops off it but who makes it grow 
The farmers can put the fertiliser down and water it. But that wee seed that God has put in there knows exactly what it's supposed to do. We might see two seeds, three seeds beside each other and we think, I don't know what that is. But plant them in the ground and let them grow and you'll soon find out what they are. God knows. And that's why we thank him. Give us today our daily bread. And then we get to the big the big bit here. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We should be frightened to pray this. Unless we're in a really good place. Before we can pray forgive us our debts we have to be aware of our own sin. We have to be in that place where we recognise that we're no perfect. Well, you're no perfect. Um, just joke. You know, the, the, the New Testament has uses five Greek words for sin, and every one of them has a has a, a connotation for us all. Amartia is the first one that's used, and it, it it's a word that comes out of a military background where people had target practice and hamartia was a word which means that you'd missed the mark that you hadn't hit what you were shooting at and you needed a bit more practice and we have to realise that in many many ways we've missed the mark we fall short of the glory of God all the time and yet in his grace and his mercy he continues to love us he chooses to love us and bless us on a daily basis the other the second word that I found that they were using in the New Testament is parabasis. And that is as if someone had drawn a line like this red line here. And I'm on one side of it and I step over to the other side. And, and that word means to step across. And that's the word that we can be a people that work in a situation where we're no stepping into a sinful situation but then for whatever reason we step over the line so we are a people we miss the mark at times and sometimes we step over the line, it might be in our language it might be in our thoughts, it might be in the way we deal with people um, it might be in our temper, whatever but we step across the line and, and for that we need that forgiveness for God Paratoma is another word that's used, that Paul uses, but he uses it in the sense that this is a, a word that's accidental, that we slip and, and we fall down. It's not something that we deliberately went, we didn't deliberately step over the line, or we didn't deliberately miss the mark. We accidentally fell into a situation where we found ourselves trapped. And the many times have we done that, we put ourselves in positions where we end up slipping. We say, oh, I can handle this. I can do it. I can, it'll be all right. I'm fine. And then all of a sudden, we've slipped and fallen. We think, what happened there? And then the other word that Paul uses for sin, or one of the others, is anomia, which is lawlessness. That's basically what it is. And that's what he's talking about. The people who are just out of control. Just like the world is at the moment. Just out of control. They just have no regard for the things of God. They've got no regard for self-respect or the respect for other people. They just are totally lawless in their behaviour. Hopefully that doesn't apply to Christians. But it certainly applies to those that are unsaved. But the word here that's used in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, this 
Forgive us our debts, or forgive us our sins, as we forgive our sinners. Ophelima is the word, and it means an unpaid debt. That's why in translations they put forgive us our debts, because it can mean a debt, an unpaid debt, or it can mean a sin. And a debt's, as I always say, a debt's never a debt until it can't be paid. It's not about that. This unpaid debt that we have means that we've got something that we have to bring before God and it's something that we have to say, Lord, no matter what I do here, I can never pay back what I owe. I can never pay the price for this sin, for this debt. And I suppose in some measure when we say that, forgive us our debts, we're asking God to be part of our lives. We're asking God to, to cleanse us and to pay the price. And he did pay the price. When we couldn't pay the price for our own sin, for our own debt, he paid the price. He was the one who was sacrificed on Calvary's cross. But the second part makes it even more troublesome. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Ooh. That's a hard call. How often do we hold on to grudges? How often do we get easily offended and fall out with people? How often do we put ourselves in a position where because of our own self-will we miss the mark, we step across the line? We go into a place of almost lawlessness. You know, Jesus is saying here, the imperative is it's absolutely essential and utter that we forgive one another. Unforgiveness, bitterness is a cancer of the soul. It'll eat you from the inside out. Don't take the huff. Don't take the hump. Jesus, if he wanted to, he could have, he could have been quite difficult about this and said, well, I'll die for you, but I'm not dying for you because you're too bad or I'll die for you but I'm not dying for you because I don't like the way you speak about me or I don't like the way you talk to your brother I'm so but he didn't he took us all gave us all the chance nobody's excluded nobody's told I'm sorry you're too sinful or you owe too much many people today and I find it really very very sad and it's happened in this fellowship as well. Many people today, they walk away from God because they cannot forgive their brother or their neighbour or their enemy. They take a slight at something that's been said or something that's been done and instead of sorting it out, they end up not only walking away from fellowship, but they walk away from the Lord. If that's the way the people of God are, then I don't want anything to do with them. And it's an excuse. But you know something? I say it all the time. If you're looking for an excuse, you can find one. There's always an excuse. Because we're not perfect. And neither am I. I can't always be your friend and your pastor. Sometimes I will offend you. Sometimes you might be upset about what I've said or done. And I apologise for that. But please don't walk away. Come and talk to me and tell me about it. And we'll sort it out. And so Jesus goes on to talk about in verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now why would Jesus lead us into temptation? 
Lead us not into temptation. Because the word temptation there is slightly mistranslated. It should really be testing. And that's not a bad prayer to have before the Lord. Lord, lead us not into testing. Who in the right mind would want to be tested? Jesus was tested to the utmost degree on many occasions. But why would we want to be tested? But when we are tested, when we are put in that place where we don't know what's happening to us and we think, Lord, where are you? Many times did David cry that out in the Psalms. Lord, here I am, but where are you? You know. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into testing. But deliver us from the evil one. So, when we are in testing, deliver us, Lord. Come and be that great and holy God that will deliver us from the evil one. Don't pray this bit of the prayer. Don't pray it if you are constantly putting yourself on sin's path. If you're constantly putting yourself in a place where you deliberately know what you're doing, that you're walking the wrong way, then don't ask God to deliver you from evil. Because he'll let you go through it. You've picked the test, go for the test. At the end of the day, God will always honour you. He will always be there with you. He will always walk through it with you. But he'll walk through it with you so that we'll learn a lesson. This is not the way to go. Don't put yourself in sin's path. Don't put yourself in a situation where you'll be tested or you'll be tempted to do something that you really wouldn't want to do. Because at that stage, you're standing against God. God will not desert you in it, but he'll say, if that's what you want to do, go and do it. You see, we think, when we read that scripture that says, God will give us the desires of our heart, that it's all good stuff. God will give you the desires of your heart. But it might not be what God wants for your heart. It might be what you want. If that's what you want to do, go and do it. I'll be right here when you're finished. I'll be ready for you when you come back. For if you forgive at 14, verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. Forgiveness for us is not an option. God demands it. It demands it that we love one another, that we love our enemies, that we love our neighbours, that we turn our enemies into friends. And we can only realise that when we realise what he has done for us. He has left eternity. He has left the greatest show on earth, if you want to call it that, in heaven, and come to rescue us from our sin. We need to get it sorted out. When we realise the reality of what God's done for us through Jesus Christ, everything else peels in insignificance. We need to get it sorted out. It's just, it's not always, in fact, it's never always the other person's fault. This forgiveness, it's a basic Christian requirement. That's how you'll know that we are Christians because we love one another. And we overlook the sin. Standing here as a pastor of this fellowship, unfortunately I don't have the privilege of holding grudges. Many of the time I've wanted to walk away. In fact, there's been times during my pastorship of this fellowship that I've been before the Lord three times a week saying, Lord, I resign. I don't want it. 
Kiro are rebellious and stiff-necked people. And you know what God says to me? So what does that make you? The leader of a rebellious and stiff-necked people. But you know, even in those hard times, God has always melted me. Oh, God has always brought that word to my heart that has encouraged me, even when, when things and material things and the things, the demands of life have discouraged me. The three things that we need to learn if we're going to forgive, we need to understand people. When people slight us, do malice against us, say all sorts of rubbish against us or whatever, we need to understand where they're coming from. Maybe they're having a bad day. How many times have you spoken something and then a minute later regretted it? And yet, it's out there. Or someone has said something to you and you take it on board and say, well, that's it, I'm finished. And although they've regretted it, you've taken the, the grudge. We need to be able to understand where people are coming from. That's the first place we need to be to be able to understand what it is to forgive. We also need to be able to forget. And I don't mean that in, a, in the physical sense of the word. That, uh, if you're starting to forget things, you've got a disease, you know, it's something that you've got Alzheimer's or something. But to take that step, that agape step, to choose to forget... To choose to love a person so much that it doesn't matter what they've done, you'll forget it, you'll play it aside, you'll put it away. If they bring it up to you, you say, I don't know what you're talking about, because that's what God does with our sin. He casts your sin into the deepest part of the sea, as far as the east is from the west. And he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. God will never bring your sin back up into your life. Your forgiven sin is forgiven. And the other thing, of course, is you've got to understand them. You've got to learn how to forget. And you've got to allow the Lord to teach you how to love. I mean, this was Jesus teaching these guys how to pray, but we need to learn how to love. We need to be taught how to love. We don't know how to do it. We can love each other if, if we're loving each other backwards and forwards. If it's a mutual thing, it's easy. When it's no mutual, when people are holding grudges against us, when we're trying to make the difference, we need to learn to understand, we need to forget, and we need to learn how to love. And remember as you pray this, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. It requires an act of love toward others. It's not just a simple rant. It's not just a chant that we put forward. You'll always know when you've not forgiven somebody. Well, that certainly comes to me, and I'm quite sure it comes to everybody else. When somebody mentions somebody's name to me and I think I've forgiven them and they say so-and-so and I so-and-so and this ball of ire rises here and you think oh, I could kill. <laughs> You've not forgiven them. You may well have spoken the words Lord I forgive them but it's not happened yet. That has to be a physical act of love. You have to say Lord this is what I'm going to do. And it may, it may take you having to go and see that person. And they may end up shouting and bawling you down and saying, get out of my house, I don't want to see you ever again. That's fine. But as far as it depends on you, where it's possible, love at peace with everybody. The Christian's responsibility to love at peace with everybody. So remember as you pray this, 
It requires that act to love towards others. In verse 16 it says, he changes tack now and goes on to the third part of this. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their word in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He said the same thing about giving and he said the same thing about prayer when you do it, do it secretly and your father who sees what you did in private will reward you Jewish fasting their idea was always this call to repentance Nehemiah, Samuel and Daniel always called a fast and you know people talk, the word fasting here actually means to abstain from food it's, that, that's basically it. There isn't any other translation for it. So, what people call the Daniel fast and all the rest, these are no fasts. It is an abstinence from food. The Pharisees in Jesus' time used to fast on Mondays and Thursdays because apparently Thursday was the day that Moses went up Mount Sinai, and Monday, a few weeks later, was the day that he came back down it. So, these were the sort of fast days. And also, of course, these were the market days. So, in the market, Jesus talks about them, you know, they, they would stand in the marketplace and they would have, they would have their hair all dishevelled and their clothes thing, and their faces all twisted, and people say, oh, what a pious man, he's fasting, you know. And Jesus said, the opposite's the truth. You know, make yourself look even better than you would normally look, so that nobody will even guess that you're fasting. I used to go to a meeting with some, uh, with some clergy around this area at one time. And uh, we had this meeting on this particular day, and every day <coughs> I went, there was one particular person. We were supposed to take our own packed lunches and stuff, and so we did. And this one particular person said, oh, no, I'll just have a glass of water, please. And it was obvious to me that they were fasting. But they could have picked another day. When they knew they were going out for lunch, they should have really picked another day to do it. And, and it became a thing that, you know, look at me, I'm fasting. And maybe that's a wrong attitude, but, you know, just the same as our giving and the same as our prayers, our secret private prayers, our fasting should be the same thing. It's not something that we should be ostentatious about. It's just something that God calls us to do. Today we've lost the art of fasting in some measure. But fasting is good for your health. They've finally caught on to this. Because they're doing this 5-2 diet now that you fast for two days and you eat for five and you lose weight and you feel better and suddenly they're coming into scripture because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They fasted for two days a week and ate for five. That's what the Jews did. So it's good for your health. It's good that your body gets a rest. God says that your body should have a rest. You should have a spiritual rest on a Sabbath somewhere during the week. And your body would, could do with the rest as well. Steady stuffing it full of grub every day. It's good for self-discipline. It's good to be able to say, I'm going to spend today and not eat. Because it's amazing when you make up your mind to not do something, how big a testing or a temptation it becomes to you. But God will honour you and see you through it. You may be doing it for your health. You may be doing it for your self-discipline. But if you're praying about it, you're doing it for the Lord as well. Fast is good. Fasting is good to help you not become a slave of habit. That if you decide to, I mean, if you're eating chocolate every day, 
and you decide I'm going to have a fast or I'm going to fast this day and I'm going to abstain from all food then you'll not eat chocolate either so it breaks a habit if you understand what I mean fasting helps you appreciate things all the more when you fasted for a day or you fasted for a couple of days when that big steak lands on that plate on the third day you think wow I'm ready for this I am ready for this it's a low start let's try and honour it and honour God through it and I think we're going to have to call it quits at that today but something I just wanted to finish off with if I can find it at the end of this uh, passage just as well I'm not going any further Jesus knows the problem we face in your life from a day to day basis and he wants us to look upon our days even our fast days and our prayer days or whatever it is our giving look upon it as if this were your last day how would you live your life if this were your last day because it might be Jesus might come back this afternoon Jesus might come back before I finish you say thank goodness If this were your last day, how would you spend it? Because that's the way the Christians should live their life. Yes, we can learn from the past, but we don't live in it. We can plan for the future with God's will, but we have to live for today. Today's the day. If your heart's full of unforgiveness and bitterness, maybe today's the day we need to get it sorted out. There's no point and concerning yourself about tomorrow says Jesus because tomorrow might never come today has got enough issues of its own so let's be a people that are strong in the Lord let's be a people that when we give, when we pray, when we fast that we do it unto the Lord and we do it in a way that God will honour us as we honour him let's pray Father we just thank you and praise you for your word to us Lord we thank you that you challenge our hearts Lord we thank you that you lift our hearts for that place, Father, where, where sometimes we become a bit complacent about how we live our life, Lord. I know many times I've cried out to you, Lord, I'm sick of the way I live my life, Father. And Lord, you've always answered me. You've always lifted me up. You've always shown me the path. And I pray that you'll do that for us all, Lord. I pray that you'll be with us this day, Father. Encourage us. Build us up, Lord. Help us to be a people that are truly yours, that want to honour you in all things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can stay...